This is Carl. This is Mark. And this is Sarah. And this is Retrograding. Yes, this is Retrograding, the show where three 90s kids give adult looks to our favorite childhood films. This week, we are taking a look back at Heart and Souls to see if our nostalgia is warranted. So, Sarah, as the only one of the three of us who saw this before we had to watch it for this podcast, you are going to give us a 60-second synopsis. Are you ready? Probably. Great. (laughs) Love the confidence there. Yeah. All right. And... In three, two, one, go. On a late night in the late 50s, at the same time, a woman gives birth to a child and four people die in a bus accident. The four souls are attached to the young boy and act as his imaginary friends until then being his imaginary friends starts causing him problems with his family, at which point they disappear. Years later, when he, this Thomas, played by Robert Downey Jr., is now an adult, they find out that they were actually supposed to be using them to do their unfinished business. So, in the end, the one guy writes the wrong of stealing from a child, the other one faces his fear of public singing, another one finds out where her children have gone, and the last one helps Thomas to overcome his fear of relationships with other, and finally gets um, to go forward with his relationship with Elizabeth Shue, his girlfriend, and in the end, all four move forward, getting picked up by the bus driver that killed them in the first place, who has been has to drive bus life for eternity now, and everything happy. Everything right. happy. <laughs> everything, everything happy. happy. Yes, that's that's Sarah's version of happily ever after. <laughs> Just everything happy, It was guys. one second, and so I couldn't finish happily ever after. That's everything happy. Everything happy. I, I really have to remember to put sound on for that, so our audience knows how badly we do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was all right. It was only like over... It was only over time, like, two seconds, which is pretty good for us. Hey, according to my delay, I was fine. All right. Let's go into long form. What did you guys see as adults that you may have missed as children? Now, for me and Mark, that is everything. everything. (laughs) So, uh, let's see. What did you... Sarah, where do you want to start? Um, the one thing I noticed was... Do you notice who plays young Thomas? Yes, it's the kid yes. from the Santa Claus. I did not recognize him while watching, but I did go back and look no, him up. No, the thing I, that t- tipped it off it. for me is the voice. Yeah. The voice tipped me off. And I'm like, he's just cursed to play roles where people think he's crazy. Where his parents <laughs> think he's crazy. Well, let's talk about the the main conceit of this movie. Because I really, really love the first act of this film. It's a... It's like a short film vignette where five storylines coalesce into where the film really begins. Where we get a backstory for each one of the people who is about to become a ghost. uh, And we get Thomas's parents on the way to the hospital where these ghosts get attached to this newborn child. He gets born in a car because uh, that's how films work and things go. Because of the accident. (laughs) Because of the whole second half of the movie after the time jump is about them finishing their business i do really like that they show us 
what the unfinished business is in right. the first part. Instead of just being like in the second part being like, well, I did this thing this one time and it's bad and I feel bad about it. We actually know what that unfinished business is because that's those things that led up to the them being on the bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the in this world of ghosts, uh, apparently like they're all adhering to quote unquote God's plan where they have a chance to right the wrongs of their lives. And so since four people on the bus had unfinished business, they fly into the nearest soul, the nearest new soul, uh, and are permanently attached to this newborn baby and help raise him until he is seven and then leave in the most horrifying scene where this seven-year-old who has known no other life without these four ghosts gets woken up in the middle of the night as each one says goodbye and he cries He's as each one sobbing. disappears now, forever. I mean, really, the reason that they did this was supposed to be for his own good because the parents right. were, they, like, on the verge of divorce because they were fighting and about their son and to, his emergent, like, imaginary friends. Sending him to, like, therapy asylum because yeah. it's the 50s and yeah. not great things for a little kid who can see things. Yeah, but, like... It, no, it's a very upsetting scene. This happens a lot in film, but he... Th- we're accepting that ghosts are real in this yes. world. So he can prove to other people that these ghosts exist. Simply by, like, them holding something he can't see and him telling him what's back there because a ghost can see it. Like... There are ways to scientifically prove in this world that these ghosts are real, and they don't explore that. But people they are, just disappear. I mean, but that would ruin. Yeah, that sure. defeats the purpose the of the movie. Of the film. Fine. And all of this is based on the fact that the guy that was supposed to give him them the orientation just never shows up. Yeah, so which is really funny. There is the basic setup where each of the ghosts are supposed to get an explanation of what they were supposed to be doing while on Earth before they go to heaven. That doesn't happen. It's like if in Beetlejuice, if they never got the handbook. Right. So with everything, you know, towards the end of the film, we learn that kind of everything is along the plan of what God set up. Like there are no mistakes in this world where God controls everything. Was that just his plan overall? That I don't these think ghosts this is aren't really, supposed to get the explanation. This is not a. I mean, it is a God sort of thing, but this is definitely not a Judeo. It's it, this is a mashup of different things because they definitely sure. are saying the soul is going to be a reborn things like that it seems like there's reincarnation it does mention angels the reason the bus driver comes to pick them up is because new new people are being born and they need souls so they're taking a soul from someone who died and putting it in a baby yes so there's some idea of reincarnation so there is no necessary thing of idea of there it's never explained if this whatever interpretation of god that they're using right right is all powerful no mistakes god I will say that the last ghost story, which we will get into in time, doesn't go as planned. RDJ has a conversation with the bus driver who says, well, no, that can't happen. She's here for a reason. There has to be something more than what you planned on. Like the explanation as to it has to work because it can't not work. She's here for a reason. But he's just like middle management he's probably just I know. never had a mess up before 
But he does have he does have whatever spiritual leader's ear in that he's able to do something for RDJ in the last ghost. I'm still confused. There's also dramatic rain his, in that scene. Like, oh yeah, we because will get he's to the a bus driver during his life. Now he dies, and he's just eternally driving a bus for the rest no, of his life, always years. bringing souls. Yes. He said so, 500 years. He gets that punishment. He's in permanent purgatory. Not transporting permanent. Transporting souls. Well, Again, right. 500 uh, years. That's 500 close years of purgatory <laughs> uh, because he caused the accident, because he was careless and caused souls to die before their time. But maybe that's his unfinished business. Maybe, to what? Transport these ghosts to heaven? Maybe because he didn't get those people to their destination, now he has to get other people to their destination correctly. But he's. But you never hear that. The only ones he is transporting are these four. Well, he if has anything, a giant notebook. He obviously has other people he's picking up. Did you see that binder? I did. It's very big. Uh, though, if anything, the bus driver's unfinished business is to watch the rest of the women getting undressed <laughs> that caused the accident in the first place. If anyone should have gotten in the car accident, it was that other car. They seem to have gotten away fine. So. For the fact that they were, like, hooking up while driving. And going about 55. We should explain each one of the ghost stories. That's something I want to go into for our audience who maybe hasn't seen the film, like me and Mark. Or hasn't heard of it. <laughs> and I will say, to three explain of the how four the bus ghosts, accident happens. Three of the four ghosts... I knew his act. I still know his actors. I still don't really know the guy who played Beethoven's dad. Oh, is that Beethoven's dad? What the opera singer? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen Beethoven since I was like seven. I, you know, and I knew he looked familiar, but I always have him confused with someone else that I can't remember his name right now. Father of Good the Bride. Good story. Very specific. Father of the Bride, isn't that Steve Martin? That yes. Steve Martin. <laughs> Somehow I get their faces confused. I don't well, know. Steve Martin does have a lot of faces. Um, so, explaining to our audience how the bus accident happens, these four people are all on the bus in this great scene that uh, we all explains their past. They all get on the bus either to uh, prevent something from happening or get to their job away from their kids or you know, coming home after um, failing to perform. And they all get on the same bus, and the bus driver gets very distracted by this very pretty lady who is, um, say, getting frisky with this other driver next to them. And he keeps leaning over to see as much as he can see and misses a car pulling out in front of them, which makes him swerve into oncoming traffic. And then in the path of this... Uh, father and mother who are on their way to the hospital because the mother is giving birth. So they swerve out of the way of that. They go off of a bridge uncontrollably and the bus crashes. Uh, and then the ghosts come up and they get attached to this newborn child, which is born in a car, even though this is an incredibly messy process that I'm glad this film didn't go into. Anyway, so that's <laughs> the basic premise. Car accident, ghost going into baby. So later on... When the bus driver is coming back to pick them up and talking about how other so other people are being born and need souls, he's taking them individually because each newborn needs a, its own soul. For some reason, all four of them get attached to one baby at the same time at the beginning of this. Yeah, it's it's interesting in that it is a different type of setup for these ghosts. The ghosts adhere to rules, but it's not a rule set I've seen in any other film. 
Uh, like traditionally, ghosts will get tied to the place that they died, or they'll get tied to a specific item uh, that they had in life that another person gets, and they can reveal themselves to this person. This is an interesting setup where the baby can always see these ghosts. And if the baby goes too far away, the ghosts get dragged along with them. And so they are only corporeal in front of this guy. And they have like this radius of maybe 10 to 20 feet that they can get away from this living creature. Except for the one lady who turns out to actually see ghosts, but also be crazy. Yes, we will. I need to know more about yes. this lady. I was hoping that they would get more into her story as the movie yeah. went on. And she, she's there for Not like 20 seconds. All. I'm starting to look at my notes, and my second note, for some reason, is just creepy bus music. <laughs> but I did remember what that was. It's whenever the bus comes, it has really creepy music. Yeah. The other thing that kind of bothered me in this film is this baby, uh, when the ghosts leave, they don't leave. They're still there. They're just invisible to this child. Meaning, this child has gone from infancy to adulthood with four spirits watching him his entire life they do mention that mm-hmm. right what? that's a little horrifying in that like imagine four people are watching you all the time they can get far enough away to be in a different room at least sure they're on the roof at one point when he's in the room so if they wanted to give him privacy they can go at least a wall away that is fair and i assume um Jeffrey, uh, oh shoot, what's her, Wood, Woodard and yeah. Kira Sedgwick would be like, men, we need to go somewhere else and give them their privacy. That's my Kira Sedgwick impression. Right. But like later in a scene, we see that like they're judging his love interests against all the other love interests he's had in his life. Like presumably everything that he has done that he is perhaps shameful about and his inner secrets that he keeps to himself and nobody else. These ghosts know about him because they've just been with him his entire life. They don't sleep. They can just watch him forever. He is kind of an awful person at the beginning. Yes. Well, at the beginning. I mean, I don't know. All we see is him being very stern with someone about their use of company money. So, <laughs> but he's he's kind of that eighties nineties like jerk businessman archetype. You mean that's the exact phrase I was going to use? <laughs> well, that's not eighties, Mark. But yes, uh, he is very much the the cruel businessman who doesn't particularly believe in people he just believes in money this company's losing money so the investors are backing out making the whole company go bankrupt which is a good business decision but a bad moral there's decision. the assumption that he um constantly dumps girlfriends as soon as they want to get serious right um i will, will we will mention this is played by young robert downey jr post chaplin but before he got arrested so this is a very very, um, this is the first, like, real high time of his career before the, the renaissance. Uh, <laughs> right. Before the RDJ renaissance. Yes, uh, which I think Iron Man may have, well, maybe not started, but definitely, like, that was that's the where big it comeback. exploded. Yes, but it was the end of the 90s, I think, when he got arrested. The other thing I want to mention about this film is I like that it's an atypical rom-com. Because it is a rom-com in the sense that he's a part of a relationship 
it's coming to a point, certain events happen where uh, the relationship goes on the rocks, and by the end, he has gotten back together and committed to this woman. But we don't see a lot of their relationship. In fact, there's a big scene where they're discussing him meeting her parents that we don't hear any of their conversation because we're listening to the ghost discuss the conversation as opposed to the actual words that they're saying. And I like that it doesn't go into the nitty-gritty of this relationship. We get it off-screen, and we know the beats of that because we've seen rom-coms before. And so getting it in the background is great because we can focus on this new thing, which is these four... um, Oh, what's the Greek term? It's almost a Greek chorus that is commenting on what is happening. Chorus is the word. Uh, But why don't we go into the storyline for each of the ghosts... And I want to go into uh, RDJ, uh, his character acting as he takes on each one of the ghost personas. So which ghost do you guys want to start with? Should uh, we go chronological? Sure, or... let's ta- start with uh, Tom Sizemore. Is that the, the character's name? No, that's the actor, <laughs> Tom Sizemore. Great. So was this, this was one of the people that you knew beforehand. What else have you seen him in? Oh, a bunch of stuff. Known for true romance, natural born killers, saving private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, Pearl Harbor. Um, he does a voice in uh, Vice City. <laughs> the Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Tom Sizemore is very well known. All right. I don't know if I would have recognized him. In fact, I know I did not yep. recognize him in this film. I also agree. He, but, like, he does state. seem to be... So he must be... not be as well-known as Sarah thinks he is. <laughs> he's definitely the type of character actor where you look at him and you immediately grok that, oh, he's like a street ruffian. He's a part of some sort of gang. Uh, not high-level gangster, uh, but, like, sh- sh- kind of street tough. You you can just look at him and know, oh, he'd fit perfectly in The Sopranos as one of the enforcers or whatever. Um, normally he has shorter hair. Okay. Maybe that's why I didn't recognize him. It's not why I didn't recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But he is playing Milo Peck, uh, a, a typical street ruffian. So he, you see him at the beginning of the movie where he is sneaking through a house trying to steal something. And then you realize that it's his own employer that he's stealing from who appears to be some kind of mafia high-level gangster guy. And he's stealing something back because he's saying we shouldn't have taken this from its original owner and we, I need to give it back to them. And the mafia guy gets mad and starts swinging at him with a fireplace poker. And <laughs> so he jumps out the window and runs off, jumps off the roof to another house. Um, and he does not get back the stamps that he was trying to steal back. But we find out that the reason he was stealing them is because they belong to a young boy whose grandfather gave them to him. Right. This film expects us to understand stamps and their collection and how much they are worth. Do you not know it's... that some stamps can be worth a lot of money? Sure, but isn't it like like one stamp, not like a sheet of stamps? Sheets not make them better. I if, don't know. If it's a specific type of stamp, if it's a full sheet, they can be worth a lot of money. All right, fair enough. I've never seen a sheet of stamps in my life. Uh, and so... I understand that some stamps are more expensive and valuable than other stamps, but, like, I can't look at one and know specifically, oh, that's an expensive stamp. 
And in fact, when Milo's breaking in, he's like, at first, we don't know what he's looking for. Uh, and like, he's going through binders and looking through documents and it, it almost like he's going through photo albums. It was like, is he trying to steal one of this guy's memorabilia, one of his memories? I didn't quite get what he was looking for. And then I figure out it's stamps. And that seems weird for a gangster to be interested in. But we do learn later, his unfinished business is that stealing from a child is the worst thing he ever did. And it's the only thing he's ever felt guilty about. And he tried his best to get the stamps back for this child who really valued them. And then he died. Well, and I think the important thing was he was going to go straight and be a good person after this. And he was never able to because he died. So now he's just Mm. bad forever. Well... At least that's what he, that was his explanation of it. But like, given how he interacts with Thomas, it doesn't seem like he changed much. Uh, The fact that he's telling, there's a scene where he's telling Thomas at the racetrack to tell a lie to the bookie so that he can place a bet on the horses. (laughs) Uh, So I, I maybe don't believe that he'd go straight. I think he'd be straight for like a month and then go back to his life of crime. I mean, having a kid bet on the horses is not necessarily, like, a gangster offense, but... <laughs> yeah, but it's certainly not, like, moral <laughs> or, like, what you would picture a um, uh, a person who would go straight would do, I guess. Anywho. The, um... Are you, did you spend all this time looking up stamps? <laughs> there was one, a single stamp sold for over $100,000, and that's a single stamp. A lot of times if it's a, um, what makes them valuable is if they're a rare stamp and if there is a printing error. So normally if you're getting a printing error, it's going to be a whole sheet. So if you hold a whole sheet with a printing error and it's something very rare, that could get you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah, though it did seem like the kid didn't care about their value. It's more the sentimental value that his grandfather well, yeah. gave he him. He cared this. about more the sentimental value. The guy cared about the fact that it was probably a very rare stamp. That's that fair. Be worth a lot of money. Although he also held on to them for like thirty plus years instead of yeah, trying to sell. Yeah, and he didn't. And I'm sure them. they. I mean, they the value increases as they get older, and because that will make them more rare. And sometimes rare, but... rich people, it's just having the rare thing. It's having something that other people can't. Why do people have? Why do some rich people have stolen art, even though they can never steal it or even display it because they'll get caught? Because it's something they can have that other people can't. Mm, all right, I do buy that. Ha! <laughs> but I know. I would say art correct. has art does have an intrinsic aesthetic value that stamps don't. People don't display stamps do in their home. Do you think a mob boss cares about the intrinsic artistic value of a <laughs> painting, or does he care that oh, this is worth a lot of money? I want something that's worth a lot of money so I feel cool about myself because I'm a rich man. I don't know why I turned into that accent. It oh, was real weird. I I think I know why. It's because you're trying to do an impression of Robert Downey Jr. doing an impression of Milo. No, I thought his impression of Milo was really good. Yes. So let's get into that. Uh, when the bus driver comes back to explain the rules to these ghosts, he explains that they're only there to settle their unfinished business, which they haven't done for 20 years or so because nobody explained it to them. And in order to help them, they can take control of Robert Downey Jr.'s body, 
with or without Which, his permission. Again, that makes me question, why do you attach souls to a newborn baby? <laughs> See, I don't think it typically happens to a baby, is the thing. I think they just... Huh, I almost want to say it's an accident, except for they do end up helping adult Thomas by the end. Well, maybe it's because... Babies are the only time their souls are sticky and malleable enough to attach something to it. I mean, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to go into the rules of this world because they're a bit confusing. But Milo uh, takes control of Robert Downey Jr. And this is uh, the second or third time a ghost takes control of Robert Downey Jr., And I really like the individual characters that Robert Downey Jr. takes on uh, to portray each one of these ghosts in term. Now, granted, each one of these ghosts is kind of a caricature. There's not a lot of depth to their individual characters, and so it's very easy for, say, an actor to ham it up a bit, become a caricature of uh, these certain archetypes, and portray them. And so the um, the character he takes on for Milo is kind of a gruff New Yorker, uh, hey, uh, how you doing there, type of guy. He's like a, he's like a Brooklyn cabbie. Yeah, he's like a Brooklyn cabbie. Where you going, 95th and 20? I can't take you there. That's not my, uh, that's not my district. That type of guy. I'm waiting for Carl's impressions of the other characters that that take over his body. Later. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll think about them. <laughs> so, so let's going on to other characters. At some no, point. no, no. Uh, let's resolve Milo because his is the simplest to resolve. So, Mark, since you start us off with Milo's backstory, Uh-oh. why don't you give us Milo's re- resolution? Um, some things happened, and then it was resolved. The end. <laughs> um, I mean, that's basically it. Well, so what? Like we said, that he can possess people's bodies. So they look up this gangster guy and find out that he's still living at the same address where he had been when Milo broke in previously. Um, but this time he, uh, I mean, he could break in because he's a ghost, but he can't do anything about it. So he has to possess. Thomas's body and have him break in and of course all the other ghosts are reminding him now you realize if you get caught Thomas goes to jail and so he's mm-hmm. like oh I'm a professional I I'm nothing will happen and it's interesting that he walks in the door and like right there in the same room there's just the stamp sitting out on a desk that this guy has had for 30 years so he didn't even really have to look very hard which for instance, uh, the ghost found, even though the ghost can't touch anything. Right. Well, and that also brings how far can they le- walk from him? Because That's he was true. hiding outside the house, like around a corner, and Milo was able to get into the house and go look around. For- so it seems like this radius kind of changes throughout the movie, but... Eventually, they get in there, they get the stamps. Um, while they're sneaking through the house, a dog comes around the corner and starts barking at them. So they were smart enough to run up the stairs to get away from the dog, and then they're trapped on the second floor. And they end up hiding in a, the guy's bedroom right as he comes out of the shower and catches them, or Thomas, anyway. And this is the same guy, the same mob boss. The same guy, but now 30 years before, older. So With some terrible old man makeup. Obviously, the message is... Take the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> I have the high ground, no, Anakin. Don't, oh. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> oh. 
Uh, that but, that that movie doesn't exist, though. We all agree. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, no, uh, there's, though, there's certain things that are fine about it. Uh, yes. So he tries to escape this bedroom the same way he did before, running out the window onto a ledge to jump to another building, and the building he jumped on is gone now, has been destroyed in these past 20 years. Now, this is the part that I don't buy, because this this mobster has lived in the same home. If the building next to him got destroyed, this mobster would not ruin his property value by just having this dereliction blank lot next to his home. He would have built something onto there, well, or I, he would have bought that building. And originally, the, the two buildings were connected, I thought, at yeah. the beginning. So they would have had to do some kind of additional construction if they tear down that one that's attached to his, because they would have or to like, fix up his he's, part. D- he, did he have a fence around his property? I thought there I was a remember. gate originally. Yeah, right? So, like, if that's part of his property... He's not going to just demolish a wing of his home and create a garden patch. I don't know. We don't know how long it's been demolished. Maybe it was a recent project and they haven't rebuilt yet. Maybe. I don't know if you're doing remodeling if you completely destroy the building that was there before and then build it up from the ground. Maybe you do. I am not a construction scientist. Matters what you want to turn it into. If it was a house and you want to turn it into, like, a gazebo and pool area you get rid of the whole thing that's very possible uh so he managed to get the stamps he uh goes down a drain pipe and like a trellis and crashes to the ground uh and then gets out with a t- with a rip suit that he doesn't change for the rest of the movie with grass stains on it <laughs> comes back to his car and there's a cop there He's like, oh, shit, did the cop see what I was doing? The answer is no, but the cop does tow his car because he's got a bunch of parking fines that he's never paid. Uh, Much like the guy in Liar Liar, he doesn't obey traffic laws or pay his fines. Which, and this is the point where Milo says, see, you can get in trouble without me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Robert Downey Jr. actually, when I was reading background stuff, actually really liked the fact that he was in the one suit the whole time because it meant he wasn't distracted by like costume changes or stuff. He could just focus on acting because he didn't have any costume changes. He's just in one outfit the whole time. See, that's interesting because in the performances that I've done, I always associate the character with the costume. I never feel like I'm completely in character unless I'm wearing that character's clothes. And he was the same character for the whole movie. But he's taking on different personas. And to have that mental shift from moving from one character to another, I would need not just... um, a physicality change. I would need something to change in my outfit as well. Well, that's RDJ why he makes, works different. That, that's why that's he's why a he Hollywood professional. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm on par with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Guys. <laughs> oh, good. I didn't hear any sort of argument. No, there. no. So, um, I, was my red I guess we still haven't yeah. gotten to the resolution of this. They do eventually find. The adult version of the kid that he stole these right. from, who apparently still lives in the same town. And yes. they drop they them found off him in the phone at book. the guy's door, and then Robert Downey Jr. Well, just knocks on the door in, and runs away. <laughs> they live in San Francisco, right? Uh, yes. So it's not like living in like a small town where you're like, I gotta get out of here. You can live in San Francisco your whole life and be in very different places. I mean, that is fair. Um, yeah, though... 
uh, finding one guy in a phone book. He must have a very unique mm-hmm. name, is all. Which maybe he does. We don't go into the character's name. But, like, he gets his stamps back, and then that's kind of just it. Uh, we don't get a huge resolution. We He just calls to his wife. He's like, well, huh? it's the stamps. It's those stamps I've been telling you since the beginning of a relationship. Uh, and then he just kind of wanders off. And so this is maybe the drawback of the film for me. Is like each ghost is getting their own resolution. Though I feel like because we're spreading them out and setting the archetype for what this resolution looks like. Each one, since it's all kind of the each character getting their own thing, it is very formulaic. Um, after Milo was done, I kind of knew what was going to happen with the other characters. It was kind of very predictive in that way. Yes. Well, one of them in particular, which I don't want to give away till we get to that story, but that was one that I knew way ahead of time what was going to happen. Right. So, uh, And each one of them ends with the, the ticking clock catching up to them, where the bus driver comes back and says, hey, a new baby's being born, I need one of you right now. And because Milo's job is done, Milo's like, alright kid, I guess I'm out of here. Uh, and then he just leaves. I mean, he didn't really want to. He got dragged away, but... Fair enough. Hey, guys, the get kid's name was Dwayne Dortmuller. <laughs> all right. Well... All right. I buy that there's only one Dwayne Dortmuller in a town, even the size of San Francisco. That is that is good one, character naming one in that it is very film. unique. <laughs> uh, but with... Each character getting pulled away in succession. I think that's another drawback of this film for me. Because in that that quartet of ghosts, we get a lot of different personality types. And I think they play off each other very well. Milo is uh, a bit out there, a bit crass. And that's juxtaposed against like the opera singer who's trying to be a higher class than he is. And we've got the women, one's a small town girl making it in the big city. Living in a lonely world. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And the other is a uh, poverty-stricken African-American woman who's trying to get by and provide for her kids. And all of those different archetypes playing against each other really works. Like these actors, uh, when they're together, they're kind of arguing, but they kind of get that they're all there together and they have nowhere else to be. And so... They're this all is kind of their. They're, it's kind of like we get that this is a, no. a family unit, <laughs> and then each one of them in succession starts leaving the family unit, and we kind of lose that camaraderie. We lose these characters playing off of each other, and so I mean it. It is a good emotional pull. Yeah, in that I kind of like it because it these people. adds to the tension. Right, but I think we lose something in the character work with each. Like, that group getting smaller and smaller. But I guess, to me, that is the point of the thing, because now, not that not that Thomas has had them his whole life because they disappeared when he was... But when they have some clips of him as a younger child, that was his life, was hanging out with these people, and now this is showing him giving up all of his past things one at a time in order to move on with his life. And and be able to say goodbye to them because he says at the very end he's talking to Elizabeth Shue who I don't remember her character's name she's just Elizabeth Shue um, <laughs> that he was afraid of losing people because he lost them so abruptly the first time and this 
is him getting them to say goodbye to them in a more, in a better way. That's fair. I guess it was less emotionally impactful on me uh, because we had that scene of the dramatic leaving of all four of them when he's a young child. Maybe your emotions are just wrong. <laughs> well, I think that's well. that's a very high emotional moment where a young child is forced to say goodbye to these four people that have Carl, been in his life the entire time. Did you, you lose your imaginary friends in a very traumatic way as a child? <laughs> uh, we can get into that. I'm, <laughs> but... Uh, and then the end like of the this film is a little is... personal for you right now. Oh, it, it definitely is personal. And I will get into that by the oh, end no. of the movie. But because it is such a high emotional moment at the end of the first <laughs> so act. Sorry. And then slowly. <laughs> this, time, this time I really emotion, do have to take a moment because it is I'm my I'm just mom. going to keep going. Uh, you just um, keep going. And that these emotional notes are so spread out for the end of the film. It is less impactful. So it's just, it hit me really hard in the beginning, and then it's got very, it's got a lot smaller hits as the film goes on, and because of that big hit in the beginning, these small hits aren't as in, as impactful. I, I guess, I mean, I know what you're saying. I didn't right. feel, ever, you know, for each one of them, when they get their story resolved, there's kind of this big musical flourish, and it's like, sure. you kind of get... And it's the same thing. You get that little bit of a, oh, look, they got their thing figured out and it's happy and whatever. But then mm -hmm. immediately afterwards, they're taken away, which kind of is like, you know, it's going to happen after the first one. And you kind of expected yeah. it even before then, because the bus driver comes and tells them he's going to take them away. And then they talk him into letting them stay for a while longer so they can get resolve their stuff. So, you know, he's coming back. And after that, you know, he's coming back after each one so it's kind of like a i i guess i don't mind that as much because when i know what the formula is i just like well now i know what to expect and it's kind of just now i can just kind of enjoy each story as they go instead of not knowing what's coming so the resolution for each character also gets smaller and smaller because we start off with milo who we get this big protracted scene where he's breaking into a house and going off in a bus uh, and then we're going into the opera singer, which we'll go into, and that's smaller. And then we go into um, the African-American woman catching up with her kids, and that's a lot smaller. Uh, and then the the ne the other waitress girl gets... Uh, it's the end of the movie, so she gets a slightly bigger scene, but it's also a lot different in that it doesn't quite get resolved. Yeah. Uh, and so because... Each character isn't getting, like, a bigger and bigger part of the movie. It gets more and more condensed as we go on. It's less impactful for me because of that as well. The other characters' names are Harrison, Penny, and Julia. All right. So, we covered Milo, <laughs> the street-tough ruffian. Let's go into... Uh, Harrison. Harrison, <laughs> Harrison Winslow, uh, a.k.a. Beethoven's dad. <laughs> Uh, so I'll start us off here, explaining who this character is to our audience. All we get from him in the very beginning is that he is at an audition, uh, trying out for this, I guess, opera, Something. I guess opera. Yeah. Um, you, you know what? And, well, you'll, the, they have a piano player there to play yeah. accompanist with the audition. And I swear, like, just from the 10 seconds of little intro that they play of like i think i know this song but i have no idea what it is when i when i didn't I, recognize like, it. I, it sounds familiar to me but i don't know what it was well that guy playing the piano is the composer of the film oh really also That's great. if we're talking about um cameos 
we we will get to that probably in Harrison's resolution, won't we? No, this one is in in Julia's nightclub. Oh, all right. I thought uh, you were well, talking about the musician that comes later and is a really big part oh, of no, Harrison's resolution. Oh, no, that one isn't uh, hidden. That's just literally... Okay, it's not... You didn't say it was a him and cameo. You no. said it was a cameo. Well, I'll, I'll talk about that when we get to Julia. Yeah, yeah. Now, are we? Are you talking about the comedian who is doing basically a... Um, oh, what's his name? He's doing Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart's phone gag on stage. Yes. And he yeah. is supposed to be Bob Newhart. And then he Newhart. yells at them for standing up in front of him while well, he's Well, he talking. is doing Bob Newhart. That character is Bob Newhart. And right. he's played by Bob Newhart's son. Oh, Being Bob great. Newhart. Yeah, because I, I recognize the, the telephone bit. Yes. Because that is, that is classic Bob Newhart. And so many comedians tried to copy that and do that kind of thing. And him just having... You hearing half of a conversation yeah. is... Oh, I love those Bob Newhart. But the bits. point is, they got his son to do it, and that's that is wonderful. Yes. Uh, that's that's a really nice touch. I didn't even know that. I so, did because I look up trivia before we do this. Uh, yes. So Harrison Winslow is trying out for an operatic choir, uh, and is insisting that everyone goes before him because he needs more time to practice. And then he's the final audition. He's he gets like up me. on stage, uh, and the guy. Is playing the piano, starts vamping, and he goes to sing, and he just can't. And he tries again, and he just can't. And eventually, he just he excuses himself because he he just he, he can't perform in front of people, and he gets very nervous. And again, like me, but with less crying. And never tries, and then gets on, goes to the bus station, goes to the death hops bus. on the bus, and dies. And so the way that his story. Uh, gets revol- resolved. Revolved. Uh, revolved. <laughs> it turns around. Uh, if he... I mean, that's still a I mean, it'd be better if, if he sang that around, song. So. Yes. Uh, is actually, they're trying to resolve. Um, is it? It's not Penny. Yes. Who is. Yes. Um, yeah, they're going to find Penny's kids. Yes. Because they've talked to the cat lady. I thought already. Penny was the waitress. No. No. Julie is oh, the waitress. Oh, okay. Okay, Kyra, so they are going Kira, to talk yeah. to Kira Sedgwick. Penny's Kira, kids. Kyra, they get thing. stuck in traffic, and they happen to run by a concert hall, uh, and they decide, well, we're stuck in traffic. We might as well just leave the car here in traffic uh, and go and make sure that you get your performance. And they're able to break in by Penny taking control of Robert Downey Jr. and him putting on his black woman voice. <laughs> Uh, and being very sassy. Hmm. Do you guys buy that Robert Downey Jr. pretending to be a black woman would get him in and pass the security guard? No. But well, the question the is how of afraid movie. of him was that security guard, and how much did that security guard not care? Like, was this like one of those security guards that is actually like going on rounds and having to like kick people out, or is this little guy that's just monitoring like? a thing and calling other people to do that job and so he's like this crazy person i don't want to deal with it those other people can deal with it and it's just like yeah sure whatever so where he was he had a podium so i believe the security guard is just like in charge of the docking area for yeah. the theater things coming in and out uh and so this i i don't know this businessman that walks in like if robert downey jr had changed clothes into some sort of jumpsuit or like had headphones regarding, like, he's, oh, he's a tech guy. He probably would have got waved through no problem. Him coming in dressed as a businessman, well, clearly this guy shouldn't be here, 
whether or not he has a black woman voice. That does remind me of a story of a um, relative who I shall remain nameless, who said that he could get himself into like music festivals a lot because what he worked with was on um, doing tagging and labeling for shipping big cables okay. and, and equipment and stuff like that. So he would just take one of those big equipment cables and carry it mm. with him. See? And then just act like he was supposed to get there and how it's already sneak into music uh, festivals. Yeah, if anybody questions you, it's like, hey, I gotta um, get this cable uh, from over here to over there. Come on, get just, out of my way. I'm I got a job to crew. do here. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he gets past the security guard, and his big plan is that he's going to go on stage before the major music act, and he's going to announce into a microphone in front of the entire audience... Ladies and gentlemen, please rise for the national anthem, uh, which anybody in charge of the show would know that's not a part of it. You need to go immediately. But nobody stops him. Uh, and they convince Harrison to take control of his body and sing the national anthem in front of all these people, finally performing in front of a crowd and... Uh, getting the recognition he deserves. To be fair, I don't think I could have thought of a better song off of the top of my head to sing. That's fair. He definitely knows the words, and the chords are very easy. Except Harrison tells him how difficult of a song it is before he gets I up know. there. But like, well, what, that's Harrison like, being nervous. What song can we sneak in front of the opening act that kind of fits like, uh... I don't know. National Anthem. <laughs> so, I mean, it's good, but like... The National Anthem is a song we, we all know. We've all heard a million times. And so, for me, it's it's hard to distinguish, like, someone doing it exceptionally well versus someone just doing it fine. Like, I can tell you when it's someone's doing it horribly. I think we can all tell But, that. like, I can't tell you between, like, pretty good and amazing. And I wonder, because it's definitely probably just Robert Downey singing it. And he's not really a singer. If they needed something that, obviously, you're not going to threaten him an actual opera song. Right. Now, with Harrison, his final business being singing in front of a crowd, he's also using Robert Downey Jr.'s vocal cords. He's not using his own voice. <laughs> but I, I think it was less about singing and just being able to overcome his stage fright, which was the thing. Fair. It didn't really matter if he sounded good or sounded bad. It was just having the courage to do it. All right. I can buy that. Uh, and I got a little bored here because we do listen to the entire national anthem, uh, which even if it's at a sports stadium, I kind of zone out during the national anthem. Once I put my hand on my heart, there's nothing else for me to do. Hey, but there was some great guitar in the background. Now, th that only came in at the very end, though. And the the characterization that Robert Downey Jr. takes on for Harrison is probably the least amount of characterization he has to do. He takes on slightly British accent-ish. It's very uh, similar to the voice he takes on when he's playing Sherlock Holmes. So I would say Robert Downey Jr. does a fine job singing the national anthem. As I said, I was bored. The only exciting thing is at the very end... Uh, which was kind of teased earlier because his name's on the marquee when they go in, is the guitar performance by B.B. King. And I don't know what B.B. King looks like. I assume this was a character actor. What? It's not. It's B.B. King himself. Wow, Carl. 
What? I don't know music. I've heard of the name BB uh, King. I associate him with blues. Well, I can't pick him out of a crowd. And something that we skipped over was one of the the conversations between Thomas, uh, our DJ, and the girl is that there she wants him to meet her parents. And they come over one night to meet, but he is, is busy Elizabeth running Shue. around with all of the people and is late, and now she's mad at him. But she says, well, we're going to a concert tomorrow if you want to go. And he said that he couldn't because of work. And now he shows up singing the national anthem, and of course it's the exact concert that the girlfriend is at with her parents. Of course, this is the only concert in San Francisco this night, and they happen to go to this one. I, the, the only exciting thing here is really the, the BB King solo for the national anthem. It comes in late, but it really gives, um, some gravitas to this performance. Especially great is as he's finishing up, as he's belting the last notes, the bus rolls in behind them. And I really like the symbol of this bus that... It is a, it's a 1950s bus, and you can tell that just by looking at it, that it is out of place in modern day. And it's a great symbol in that this vehicle that is out of time and space rolls in, can go through objects, and it's just the clear uh, indication that one of the cast is leaving, one of these ghosts is going to heaven, their time is up. So I love that symbol, I like the end of the scene, middle of it, I was kind of bored. Her name is Anne. Anne! Yes. Not Elizabeth Shue? I mean, she is Elizabeth Shue. Right. I love Elizabeth Shue. She's great. All right. But Harrison's time has come. He's dead again. He's dead again. He says he's going on tour, so I don't, So you never know. Yes, he's taking his show on the road to heaven and possibly purgatory. All right. So let's get through our ghosts. The next one... Um, is, again, just a smaller scene. Uh, this is Penny Washington, who, Sarah, why don't you give us her backstory since Mark did the first and I did the next one. She is a single mother with three kids who is getting on the bus to go to work at night. She's left her kids with the crazy cat lady next door. Oh, yes, the the god of cats. The god like, of the, cats. she might as well be Catwoman. Yeah, lots of cats. But, um, and then she obviously dies. Her unfinished business is to figure out what happened to her kids and to make sure that they grew up okay and that uh, yeah, they are together. Yeah, in particular, making sure her kids are okay. Yes, especially her son, who was the youngest. Um, and so they're back in the neighborhood, which is even more run down than what it was in her day, which was already kind of the poor area of town. And now it's pretty much just condemned. She can't find anyone who really was from the neighborhood in time periods until they see the cats. Right. Like, cats are still flocking to this woman uh, as if she is made of catnip. Yeah. They just see the cats, like, streaming through this fence and up to this apartment. And it's just like, can she still be alive? <laughs> can uh, it be? Have the cats come back to roost? Um, and so they go talk to her, this incredibly old woman, being like, do you know where the kids are? I know where the kids are. In her old lady voice, who, was that another where they just added old age makeup to this I woman? I think so. And she's I think just they doing had like to an have. old lady voice. Yeah. Because it and is very much a sense... I'm an old lady. 
reading it. You get the sense that if she she is slightly senile. Yeah. Because like they keep having to prompt her, like, yeah. Oh, do you remember the children? Oh, right, the, the children. children. I remember some children. Some of my children are cats. Let me tell you about my cats. There's Mister Mustafeles. Ne- never, ha- oh, well, I never was there ever. Kept so clever as magical, Mr. Mustafalis. Oh, right, the children. Oh, I right, remember the children. The children. <laughs> um, anyway, so she tells them that she knows where the girls went and that they were adopted by some people in Sacramento. So they're like, okay, road trip, we're going to Sacramento, which is when they get stuck in the traffic jam and they do the whole Harrison's side plot. Anyway, and then after that, they get caught up with that cop again. Uh-huh. <laughs> RDJ sorry. gets arrested a lot in this movie. By the same cop. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think he gets arrested by the same cop. In the precinct, he's always interviewed by the same oh, cop. Oh, right. So he gets taken in the second time um, for breaking into the concert venue, and the cop's like, are you nuts? It's like, you're, you're, we did tests. You're not on drugs of any kind. You're not drunk. Are you just nuts? <laughs> and then the cop is just like, I'm going to presume you got all of the crazy out that you needed to get out, which is not how mental health works. Uh, but he's just like, I'm going to presume you got it out of your system and I'm going to let you go. Well, I assume it talks, matters what kind of crazy. If we're talking about like real mental health issues, that's not how it works. If we're talking about having some sort of midlife crisis, it might be how that works. Maybe. Like, my understanding of mental health, you know, my experience with it, is like tension builds and builds and builds and builds, and then you have an outburst, uh, and then you're okay for a bit, and then it builds and builds and builds and builds, and you have another outburst, and it's just that cycle again and again and again. Uh, But he presumes, well, you got it out of your system, it's fine, go be a person in the world. Um, and, oh, where are we now? So, RDJ gets his car back. And then he he gets in a car wreck, and it's the cop again! And, particular, the cop is in a car with his wife and child, who have come to pick him up, I guess. Because it's not even a cop car, it's like a station wagon or something. And the bus shows up, and RDJ is, like, being a crazy person. Yeah, obviously... he's like, no, it's not time yet, we have to resolve Petty's past! And he's trying to do that thing where he's, like, very quietly talking to the ghosts and the cops are like yeah i already know that you're like crazy talking to yourself this isn't helping that you're now talking quietly into your hand that doesn't fix anything yeah the way that he hides it from the cop is like <laughs> he gives his back to the cop and then like puts a hand over his mouth and just like <laughs> i'm totally not talking no 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 i need more time no you don't do that to hide that you're talking you do that to hide what you're saying, not right. that you're not talking at all. A better way to do this is maybe him talking a bit loudly in sentences that can apply to both situations. Like, oh yes, I'll definitely get you my license and registration, but I need more time. Like, that kind of conversation. But, I don't know, I'm not a Hollywood scriptwriter. <laughs> well, it's just funny to make RDJ do more weird face stuff. But then and the cop is just like, yeah, I'm done with this at the moment. Uh-huh. I'm real done. I'm going to go talk to my baby real quick. Um, well, she was crying. Yeah. And he's apparently the, the only one that can soothe her. Apparently she's a daddy's girl. Aww. Um, And so he starts singing the Bugaboo song, which is the song that Penny 
has made up for her children. And so the only people know of this are Penny's children and then Thomas because she sang it to him when he was little as well. And then, of course, obviously Penny because she invented it. <laughs> yeah, which means that this is Penny's kid, that the child that went missing uh, that she lost track of. But he's he's all grown up. He's become a cop. He has a family. She gets to see his uh, her daughter-in-law and her grandchild. And they get to tell him what happened to his sisters because they he says that even for a cop, he couldn't get into the adoption records. So this is where it would make sense to me where Robert Downey Jr. would break down and tell this cop the truth. Yeah. That, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I see ghosts uh, and your mom is here. Do you want to ask her anything? Um, and instead, he concocts this elaborate lie that uh, his his mom survived the crash for a bit. She went to the hospital. She happened to be in the same emergency room as my mom, who was giving birth at the time. And they had a conversation. And Penny told my mom all this stuff that she then transferred to me. And that's how I know your song. And then you singing that song, it just, it clicked everything. And I know where your sisters are. Like, that is almost as unbelievable as just, hey, I see a ghost. I mean, the cop already <laughs> thinks he's crazy, so he might as well go all in. Right. The This does have a great scene, or a funny scene for me, where Penny can't control herself and jumps into RDJ's body and gives her son a hug, which, from the cop's perspective, this crazy man, who I've had to deal with all day, is now giving me a personal contact that is unacceptable. It's just, I like the uncomfortability of both of the men in this situation, especially when Penny jumps back out and just leaves them in this embrace. Uh, But yes, Penny's story is resolved. She hops on the bus and RDJ has one one last ghost to take care of. All right, who wants to do uh, Julia? And let's finish. (laughs) My mom does not want to do Julia. So she was a waitress at the beginning. A waitress? Something at some restaurant. She was working as a waitress. It's a comedy club called the Purple Onion. Sure. Her boyfriend, fiance ish. Boyfriend at the time. Shows up and is trying to talk to her about their relationship. And she says, what was it? He wanted to move or go away and get something. No. This is the one I don't remember much about. Okay. We'll head it to Sarah. They're from a small farm town outside of San Francisco, which if you're not from California, most of like a middle California is farmland. Like, um, and so they're from a small town outside of San Francisco. She says she's been in San Francisco for five months and she says she's there because she needs to make sure that her mom stayed in the small town and only lived in the small town and she doesn't want to end up like her mom. She really wants to know... Um, wants to make sure she's not missing out on anything before she moves home to get married to him. And he says he's tired of waiting and that he's just bought this whole land and this big house for them. And if she's not ready to come home, then he's done. And she realizes about five minutes too late that, oh no, I kind of didn't say what I wanted to say. And he's going to break up with me if I don't correct this. And so she takes off from work, gets on the bus to go track him down. And like this... This one, I... Well, all of the backstories are pretty great. This one, I completely get emotionally that, like, uh, she wanted to leave a small town. She wanted to experience the world. 
and this guy is so settled in that small town. He just bought this huge plot of land. He's ready to settle down, and she's not. But he is the love of her life. Yeah. And so, like, she needs to make sure that their relationship is secure. In that conversation, she didn't communicate well that it wasn't him that she was unsure of. Right. It's just she's not sure about the town or settling yes. down. She she wants to have she wants to live as a rolling stone for and, a bit. And it definitely does make it seem in that thing, like when they're having that argument, that it does make it seem like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to marry you, which is how he's taking it. And it does come off across as that, which he realizes after he leaves. And she's like, oh, no, I did not say things correctly. I need to go clear this up, which she gets on the bus. And obviously the bus crashes. So she... <laughs> wants to give him a message that she was coming to see him to clear things up and to be with him before she died because obviously he didn't know that. So to resolve this, she takes control of RDJ's body and writes out a note in her own handwriting that RDJ is going to deliver to the farm and tell the guy, hey... He's going to make up another backstory like, my mom got this note at the hospital and we didn't know how to find you until now. But it's important that you read this note from the 1950s because this woman really wanted to give it to you. Uh, And he arrives at the house and is disappointed to learn that the guy doesn't live there anymore. He sold the farm about seven years ago, meaning... That Julia had time to take control of RDJ and fix this, but because she didn't get the rules, she didn't get the chance to do that. Also, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, I was getting to that. Uh, but yes, he moved away, and uh, the guy who owns the house now learned that he died some time ago. There is kind of a subtext or implication that he was found in the apartment, maybe suggesting that he committed suicide because he lost the love of his life. Well, it it said that he wasn't doing well before then and the farm was run down, meaning like maybe he didn't have the greatest life and he was pining away and sad, which is kind of depressing. Right. She said something about, oh, I don't want to mess things up if he has a wife and kids now. No, it turns out he was sick and the farm was dying. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I wanted this to get resolved in that this guy has lived, well, not 20 years, maybe 13 years. He lived 13 years depressed and broken and then has been dead for the past seven years. And there's no way to resolve this because he's dead. Uh, and it's particularly depressing that Julia could have resolved things in heaven if she had ever gotten there but she's been stuck on earth unaware that she has this other opportunity to resolve things uh and so she's been wasting time on earth instead of being with him which is what she's wanted this entire time i was very curious how they were going to resolve this love story between julia and her uh boyfriend who she's always wanted to be with and it turns out they just don't uh, RDJ has a talk with the bus driver, uh, asking for more and more time so that she can figure out what she needs to do on Earth. The bus driver's like, well, no, the time is the time. She's here for a reason. There's no mistakes here. Uh, and I gotta, I gotta take her. I could stall, but I gotta take her. And this is where we get a, kind of a disappointing reveal for me, where Julia has personal realization that she's there to help RDJ instead of helping herself, which can't be her unfinished business because she didn't die knowing RDJ. But I think it's more...
more, not necessarily him specifically. I don't, I think it's more, because even if she had resolved that and given that, it wouldn't be a happy satisfaction because if he had been alive, yeah, okay, this person still loved me when she died, but they can't be together. There's no way for them to be together. I like more that it's about helping someone else to not make the same mistakes. And maybe it wouldn't have been RGJ. Maybe it's just coming to terms with what her mistakes were was more the resolution than any actual need to do something physical. It was more something emotional she had to do. And she had to use RDJ to do that. It's seeing his situation and seeing that it was kind of a little bit of a mirror of her situation and to make that realization. And so it's not, I mean, she says it's you, but I think it's really more that she's seeing that and coming to terms with, with letting someone else be able to have that happiness when she was fighting against it. So I, I buy your argument. Um, and that's definitely the explanation the film is going with. So for me, it breaks the film in that we set up these rules. Ghosts are allowed to stay if they have unfinished business. They get attached to another soul. They can take control of the soul to finish their business and then go on to heaven. And the other three ghosts in the party get to do that. And she doesn't. And so for her being the final ghost, it's like... Yes, they have to change things because it's the final resolution. There has to be some sort of change so that it's unpredictable. But it does kind of break that rule set. uh, And it's not completely in line with the stuff we set up in the first and second act. So for me, it's like they set up these rules. And then in order to come to a resolution and be surprising, they're going to break these rules. I just like that there's something different. That not all of them are tangible that's wrong because I mean if we're talking about people having unsettled business it's never gonna be always a thing where like I can take this object and give it to another object or I can find this person or this thing some of it's just coming to the realization that you're okay because she's the she's one of the ones that like I think of the ones she's the most ready to just hop right on the bus and I think it's her coming to the realization that she's okay moving on that she she isn't unresolved anymore and I think that's more what's holding her back than anything. So hmm. I would have been more okay with it if the other ghosts, not everything was tangible. If they introduced the first one, it has something tangible. And then this one's more of an emotional thing. And then they kept doing variations on that. Well, to be fair, Harrison's isn't one. really tangible either. It's fear. His was fear. What's holding well, it, him back? That's fair. Though it is, <laughs> they do give him a performance. He needed a performance, and he gets one. Yeah, and what she gets is a lecture to give to RDJ to stop being an idiot. <laughs> uh, and I suppose she gets a hug at the end. Yeah, she's because, the only one that gets to physically contact Yeah, him. because the driver's just like, God, come on, come on, he's, please? He's tearing up a little. They made the bus driver sad, and he's been a real jerk the whole time. That's true. Though, in this scene... I have a note here that it is the second worst rain scene I have seen yeah. in cinematic history. Did you not like the dramatic ghost rain? It just came out of nowhere and then it went right. away again. That's because right. the ghost was sad. Because they get upset that she can't talk to the guy she's here to talk to because he's died seven years ago and suddenly there's a downpour. Do you not believe in ghost rain? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, and so he talks to the bus driver in the rage. just like, hey, man, what are we even doing here? Uh, and Penny realizes, uh, uh, not Penny, Julia realizes, 
it's you, it's been you the whole time, I'm here to save you and your relationship, and the rain is gone. That's because she's not sad anymore, I told you, it's dramatic ghost rain! I know. Though, it's only a step worse than, um, oh no, it's only a step better than the rain in the first, the first Friday the 13th movie, they're at a bar, and it's only worse rain because the rain falling only on a specific car and then we see it move across the screen to rain on something else and then back to the car. That is only, this is only one step better where a torrential downpour happens and then it's gone in three now seconds. I have to go watch that movie again because I don't remember that at all. I think it's great because I want to know that if I'm a ghost, I can make it dramatically rain when I'm sad. Well, wouldn't it be raining for most of Thomas's life then? <laughs> she doesn't seem super, super sad. She just seems kind of annoyed most of the time and really angry at Tom, Tom Sizemore. So wrapping this film up for our audience, Jenny tells Thomas, don't make the same mistake I Julia. did. Julia! Julia, Jenny, Penny, whatever, um, makes the, him promise that he's got to do better in his life. He goes and talks to Anne and commits to her by giving her a basket of all of his keys. Oh, which we didn't even talk about that conversation. There's a point later but... when she she's mad because she's like, the relationship isn't hitting landmarks, basically. She's like, I don't have your apartment key. And so in the end, he gives her a bunch of keys. It's cute. Yes, it's very adorable. And they kiss and the film ends. So... Uh, the other note we talked, we referenced, but didn't talk about before we go into games, is the uh, the mental patient who can see ghosts, which is what convinces Robert Downey Jr. that these ghosts are real and not figments of his imagination. Though it's never explained, how does this woman see ghosts? But she also sees non-real hallucinations. She sees hallucinations, but also real ghosts, and she knows the difference between them. Yeah. So, like, she's a medium and insane well, and, and in a mental thing, hospital. If you're at the, right the mental and hospital place. and somebody sees your invisible imaginary friends that no one else in the world has seen, why would that prove to you that they're real if this person in the mental hospital, for other reasons, can Because see shared them? delusions are very rare. Because she not only sees delusions, she sees exactly his delusions. Yes. She's able to describe to him what each one of them is wearing uh, and kind of uh, verify with him that these are the only four things that they can see collectively. Though it did have the, there's a back and forth that is maybe my favorite joke of the movie where RDJ sits down just like, hi. And she's like, no, not today. I'm off on medication. <laughs> I do like the part where she's like, and that guy with the nose ring. And he's like, what? And it's like, oh, no, he's not he there. It's like, yeah, you you check me, I check you. She's I very like sassy and, like, coherent for I a mental patient. I want her to have her own spinoff. For this being a major turning point in the movie where RDJ accepts that these are not figments of his imagination and, in fact, ghosts of real people, like, she is totally unimportant for the rest of the movie. I wonder if, like... This is just something that ended up on the cutting room floor. Like, she had a bigger character, but it wasn't as important, except for just this scene, and so it got cut. My question is, RDJ getting his, like, is he okay at his job? Yeah, he went we skipped to over their that whole scene, too. Well. Did they buy the drug I interaction? I think they had to have bought that. 
Otherwise, his life is not better by the end of the film. Because he was, he can prove that he was in that car accident. He was in the hospital. So we skipped over a scene where the ghosts start taking control of him and he just acts crazy and really hams it up in the middle of a meeting. Uh, so, do you guys have any other notes or are you ready to go on to games? I, um... I have nothing else. I'm good. Alright, so let's go on to games. Our first game is the pitch game, a game where we take two or three properties and shove them in the form It's This Meets This to describe this film. So, Mark, you are going to start us off. What is Heart in Souls in terms of other things? Heart in Souls? Heart and Souls. (laughs) I noticed you said two or three things, so I assume one of yours is going to have three things on it. Oh, no, it's just that I've used three in the past. Uh, Yeah, so have I. Okay, so... Uh, as we were discussing off the air, I'm purposely picking these because they were the ones that I'm worried that you will steal. The, o- the other ones I'm not as worried about, so... So to our audience, we are continuing something we started last time, which is now we are going to guess along with you as to what the pitch might be uh, and see if we can figure out what Mark is So So I read both movies, right, before you guess Correct. them? Correct correct you get both and part of the game is us remembering the first one (laughs) yeah all right so because it's a movie that begins with the death of the main characters who try to help the one living person who can see them and meeting a movie where four restless spirits hang in limbo for years until one man decides to help them cross over and then the ghosts end up helping the living move on with their lives instead Ooh. Well, so, the first one is definitely Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, right? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Uh-oh. The one all like, the, you said it three the second, times. The second one all I could think of with four ghosts was Casper. Yay! Oh, <laughs> nice! Yes, that was Beetlejuice meets Casper. I was thinking about Casper, but I decided not to go with it. Because uh, I chose a different property of four ghosts for this one. Uh, so... Since this is an 80s film featuring Alfre Woodward, where a successful businessman <laughs> is visited by four ghosts who disrupt his life and business, but ultimately teach him the errors of his way, and a Robert Downey Jr. film where he is a powerful businessman content with empty relationships and ruining a bald man's company, <laughs> where he finds his heart and commits himself to the most important woman in his life. Oh, what could that be? Well, it's definitely Scrooge meets Iron Man. But sorry, the (laughs) finds his heart, I thought was a little... A little uh, too much heat. Well, I mean, just it was too obvious. Is that what you're saying? Well, I just thought it was funny because his heart is full of shrapnel. I really wanted to put Iron Man on mine, but I did not, so... Yes, I'm glad somebody had it. I was hoping I'd fool you with Scrooge and you would go for A Christmas Carol instead, but you figured it out. So, because this is about people trying to go and right the wrongs of their lives and make up for things that they've done in the past, meets a... Romantic comedy with an usual take. Let's make it as vague as possible. (laughs) Well, it really only had the one thing in common. Um, Meets 
a romantic comedy with an unusual premise about the afterlife and things you have to accomplish before you are reincarnated. Hmm. Well, the first one could be any movie. <laughs> it's not a movie. I'll tell you that it's not a movie. Oh, it's not a movie. It's- um, oh, weird rules about the afterlife. I mean, this, this, could this is a movie you might not again. you might not have seen. Maybe it sounds not. like it. All right, I don't know it offhand. I'm not going to waste time trying to yeah, come up with something. I know and the first one them. is a TV show. Bring it on! What you got? It is. My name is Earl. Well, I've never watched that show, so. <laughs> well, the whole thing is about him going through the list of people he's wronged so and wait, making up for so it. Your your through line was redemption. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's what I said. Um, Meets defending your life. I have not never seen heard of your that. Life. Not familiar. Uh, with Albert Book. Albert the. Albert, Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. Mel Brooks. Nice. Not Mel Brooks. <laughs> Mel Blank, you said. <laughs> so is your next one going to be the TV show because a guy found the woman of his life that it will be right. how I it's met your mother? It's going to be, since this is a romantic comedy hey. where the couple gets together at the end, hey. meets. It was about people fixing regrets. I think that goes with My Name is Earl. Sure. It also goes with Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I've never seen Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> what? I thought that oh, it's, was about, it's about digging... redemption. It's got that right in the name. Seth. I thought it was about digging a hole in a wall. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it can yeah. be about more than one thing. I thought it was about one of the better Stephen King movie adaptations. Yeah, it's it's about Rita Hayward, really, covering up holes. Holes in the wall. Okay. <laughs> ne- I promise my next one is two movies. Sure. Mark, go ahead. Now I want to make mine more vague. I was trying to be almost specific, but not really. Mine so now, vague on purpose. It's not I'm like just... we're keeping score. I would say yeah, Sarah's yeah. first one was a bit too vague, but whatever. I wasn't trying to be vague on purpose. I'm just bad at describing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right Mark, so uh, this is a movie where only one living person can see the ghosts of dead people living with him, but he decides uh-huh. to help them find peace. I got it. Meets... A movie where one person can see dead people who he want who want his help. <laughs> now one of these is the sixth sense, and I think the other one is the sixth sense. <laughs> well, you're correct about one of them. <laughs> but which? Um huh. I really wanted to mix the these two one... up, but they were the only two I could put together after uh, all is the it other like ones. Ghost World meets the sixth sense. Uh is it that one where what's his name from the office is trying Ghost to help? World. Is that the one with Greg Kinnear's and he's the dent and uh oh what is that stupid person he's from extras and I don't know. That is she not it though. Mark what you it got? was mostly ghostly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a movie you made up. Uh, it was a 2008 movie. I have not seen it, but I found it on the internet. So. I was That was 19. released the same year as Iron Man. Um, that meets the sixth sense, yes. The, yeah, okay. So I, was, I, I wanted to I keep those 19. split up because their connection was so much the exact same thing. But all the... I had them added with other ones, so... So I would have had another pitch game, except for the connection I was making was just going to be a repeat with different movies. I could use the same description and just interchange the films. Okay, you want to go, Carl? Yes, I was just taking a drink of water. 
So since this is a film where a man gets distracted by a woman and dies in a car accident, a soul takes control of a body that is not their own, and a rich businessman changes his ways, meets a movie with a 1950s car crash that produces a ghost that manifests themselves in modern day to an adolescent boy. Uh, and later threatens to disrupt his life until he helps them complete their unfinished business and ends with driving off to heaven in an automobile. Heaven can wait. No. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to guess heaven can wait. You made the second one so long that I forgot what the first one was. <laughs> um, Souls taking control of bodies. Uh, Scooby-Doo the first one. Scooby-Doo, the first one is not correct. <laughs> hey, they do take control of other people's bodies in that That one. is good. I was looking mm. for a lot of those. So it may not be a film you saw. Uh, the first one is called Down to Earth. It was a Chris Rock vehicle. No, wait. Is that? Just a second. I yep. have to look this up. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm waiting for Sarah. I got it. She told me to wait. Sorry. I think the second second. one is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang because they ride off in a vehicle. (laughs) I think it is a film that Sarah may have seen. Um. No, I. Flubber. Remember, I said heaven can wait. Yes. Were you thinking of Down to Earth? No. Okay. (laughs) Down to Earth is based on the stage play Ah. Heaven Can Wait, which the 1978 movie. Is also based on. Gotcha. All right. So when me guessing heaven can wait, I was guessing this. It it still I'll, fits. I'll give you half points that we're not keeping track of. Um, Where the points don't matter. But it matter. is. Because I'm it like, is, no, it definitely is the same movie. I'm so confused. It is. It is. Um. So it was down to earth meets Susie Q. <gasps> Oh, I forgot about that. was a Disney Channel original one with it the pink sure Power was. Ranger in it. With the pink Power Ranger who we were talking about earlier. Yes, we were. Her boyfriend I have never seen this bridge. movie. Uh, she plays a ghost. She does. Who's got to help her grandfather find the deed and, to save and she, her town or whatever. She, like, <laughs> or whatever. she died right before the big dance or something because uh-huh. she's in that dress. Uh-huh. A very cute dress. Anyway, Sarah, go ahead. Okay, so this, because this is a movie where Robert Downey Jr. takes on different persona and speaks with weird voice, meets a movie where... (laughs) Right? (laughs) I got it. I got it. Meets a movie where one person can see ghosts and must help tell his loved ones of their intentions and... (laughs) Let his love be known to them. I think I got and that And also, one too. a music number is a very important scene uh-huh. in that movie. Oh, my darling. Yes. All right. Uh, so, I wait. Oh, Tropic Thunder <laughs> meets Ghost. Yep. Yes. Yeah. All right. I good. almost mentioned what we were just talking that I was surprised <laughs> no one had mentioned Ghost yet, but I had to wait till Sarah talked before I said that. And I knew somebody well, would. The woman in the insane asylum kind of reminded me of Whoopi Goldberg a little in that. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I probably, I definitely would not have come up with Tropic Thunder my- as as a match for this. Although <laughs> All I saw was my when third he was one doing- is great, like Robert Downey Jr. ham acting for sure. When he was doing some of the physical comedy, being some of the other things, and I'm like, this was just like his his reel for doing Tropic mm-hmm. Thunder. He's just like, look what I've done before. I'm fine. <laughs> look, I can put on a black voice. Uh, 
Well, my third one gets out there a little bit, too. All right, so, let's do it. <clears throat> this is uh, a franchise based on weird and supernatural occurrences. In specific, one particular story focusing on the in- inability to move on until you have completed the one most important task in life that you weren't allowed to do meets... Uh, a movie where, through a series of events, one person starts to find himself by removing each of his invisible friends one at a time. Identity. Hey! Yeah, Identity was what I was going to go with for the second yep. one for sure. Uh, though I couldn't remember the title of it, I was going to say that weird horror motel yep. movie. That's, which that's is how identity. I looked it up when I that had to find That one where John Cusack is killed by a little kid in a murderer's head. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, the first one... I can't remember, and I don't have a guess for it. It was the Twilight Zone, because there's the one episode with Ed Wynn where he's a salesman and has to make a big sale before he can die. I love to laugh. That's That's not not, in that That's him, but not in that movie. (laughs) Um, All right, so let's go on to our second game, which is Alternate Tagline. A phrase you would see on the movie poster for this film that tells you the theme of the movie, though possibly misses the point. So, Mark, you're going to start us off. What do you have? What would go in the movie poster for Heart and Souls? So, I will say I'm not really particularly happy with either of these, but... Oh no, minor, not great either. When you're a spirit, no one can hear you scream. It's, it's true, they do scream a lot in this movie. <laughs> but like... But specifically, one person can hear them scream. No, well, not at the beginning. Not at first. Fair. Not till they start singing. That's fair. All right, so here we go. Uh, heart, heart, and souls. Ask not for who the bus rolls; mm. it rolls for thee. I hate mm. it. Yep, you're welcome. Okay, mine's pretty straightforward. It's just heart and souls, the romantic Ghostbusters. Damn <laughs> it. All right. He must learn to be more flexible to help his friends in limbo. <laughs> I don't like it, but I'm applauding how bad it yep, is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so this was something I considered to using for the lesson. It's just like the theme I got from this film was heart and souls. Maybe don't abandon children that depend on you. <laughs> Hey, uh, are we going to read the real ones, by the way? Uh, we can. Some of them are not bad, but I will pull them up. Sarah, go ahead. Heart and souls. Never trust a bus driver. Ha! <laughs> all right. Um, so, oh, I'm the only one with one left. Mark, do you have the taglines pulled up at all? I do not. I remember that right. one of them was, uh, we want your body. I think. Yeah, that was the worst one. <laughs> yep. I'm surprised you remembered that one and not any of the it's actually good ones. It's because it was short and easy to yeah. remember. All right, but my final one was Heart and Souls. You only have one life to live and one afterlife to fix it. Oh, that's actually a good one. Yeah. I, th- I th- you know, sometimes we come up with the ones that sound better than the ones they actually had for the movie. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because some of our taglines are specifically better. I think some taglines are written before, like, the, the the whole film is cut together. And so that's why they kind of miss what the film is about, just because things have changed. Yeah. So, here, okay. So, one of the official ones, the story of four souls who needed a body and one guy who needed some soul. See, that's not bad. 
Uh, the other one is from the actual thing was Heart and Souls, a comedy about two hearts, four souls, and second chances. Like, that's pretty good. It's cute. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm surprised because taglines are historically terrible for the movies <laughs> we did. The ones for this movie are actually pretty good. Yeah. Like, I feel like some of our it. better ones are on par with this. Mine are anyway. never good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't counting you. Uh, so, let's move <laughs> on to the TV Guide game. Don't make me yell at you about flamingos again. All right. Uh, Flamingos. A description of the plot of the film you would find in a TV guide or Netflix description that accurately describes the plot, though perhaps misses the point. So, Mark, you're going to start us off once again. Uh, Give us, uh, what is the plot of Heart and Souls? I wrote this before Sarah corrected me, but I'm going to read it the way I wrote it. After dying at the wheel, a bus driver is condemned to ferry souls to the afterlife for all eternity. Ha! It's uh, wrong. I have a very similar one, though I think it's more accurate. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> mine is four people who never managed to get their own lives together, emotionally damage a young boy, and then threaten to ruin his adult life in order to selfishly fix their own problems. Meanwhile, a government employee screws up his job so badly he is sentenced to do it for an eternity. Mm. Still, mm. only 500 years. Yes, but that can seem like an eternity. <laughs> it is not eternity as a whole. Periods of time can seem like an eternity. That's all right. All. Eternity is correct. A man is tormented by lost souls into doing their bidding. Ooh. That's a, that does sound like a weird Ouija board film. Yeah. But is it wrong? No, it's very good. Oh, yes. A psychological thriller chronicling one man's battle with schizophrenia as he deals with each of his personalities one at a time until he is finally at peace. <laughs> now, did you write this for the movie Identity? <laughs> I wrote the, t- the guide before I remembered, hey, there's a movie about that, so I put that into the pitch game as well. <laughs> Pretty good. Alright, my last one. <clears throat> A woman who died without reconciling with the love of her life never gets the chance to resolve this mistake, even though all of her friends get to fix their own issues. And a woman who can inexplicably see ghosts gets completely glossed over. A man makes up imaginary friends to avoid meeting his girlfriend's parents. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, does that work? I don't know. I'll have to try that one. You could say he brings back his childhood friends, imaginary friends. I don't know. I never had an imaginary friend. I I made up an imaginary friend. Like, I made one up because other friends had one, and I (laughs) thought I was uncool because I didn't have one. I I was uh, much the same way. I wanted to find a way to get inside out into my pitch games, and I just couldn't do it. But what was his? Bing Bong? Yes. Bing Bong was indeed... The Inside Out Imaginary Friend. I still, I one of my lesser favorite Pixar ones. Yeah, yeah. it's probably because he saw it in Spanish. <laughs> Was it Spanish? Well, we only also only signs. saw like a half of the movies. So. Only yeah, the signs true. were in Spanish. And That's I always feel true. bad because I feel like I should like that one more because it is very representative of my life. Yeah. I moved the same distance at the same age and I was just like, don't care. <laughs> I'm not crying. <sighs> I'm not crying. You're crying. Up made me uh, cry. All right. Like five so let's times. Go, 
Let's go on to our review scale, starting off with our infamous potato scale, telling you what you can expect as an emotional state watching this film in terms of our relationships with potatoes. You think I've looked this up already? Um, I wrote mine down, even. Wow. Well, why don't you start us oh, off then, man. Mark? <laughs> well, okay, so our potatoes are interesting, to say the least. And one well, of these mostly... is ones that I think we got that we just added for one of our recent episodes. I don't remember which one, but what, vodka. I remember when when Sarah first suggested that we watch this. She, the way she phrased it was, "I want to make you two watch this movie." And <laughs> to me, I I thought that meant that it was going to be something bad or that I wasn't going to like no, it. No, I she also was phrased it as it. <laughs> I said it was my favorite Robert Downey Jr. Well, movie. That's well. right. So and so I. I not guess, sorry. Sorry, I'm gonna break in here, and not to get too spoilery, but you did reference, um, is it Endgame, as yes. to why you chose this film? Well, yes, because in honor of Robert Downey Jr., I said let's watch my favorite Robert Downey Jr. movie, and we're leaving it there. So, Mark, go ahead. What was your so I had uh, we have one that's Red Robin fries, which was better than expected, apparently, which. We have a different one that was not as expected, uh, but this one is better than expected because I was expecting to go into some terrible movie that I wasn't going to like, and it was actually (laughs) Uh, not how I meant to phrase that. So (laughs) um, that one, but also I put mashed potatoes because as each of these things get resolved, we discussed this earlier that it doesn't have as big of that emotional impact as when they all leave the child at the beginning. But mm-hmm. you do get that, oh, everybody's getting to, getting their, their, I don't know the word, but <laughs> their, you know, their, their life goal or whatever is, is getting resolved so that they can finally move on and be at peace with their death, I guess. So, so I had the mashed potatoes just that it was that heartwarming ending and for each character you got an additional little kind of emotional thing for each one of them all right so for me um i said we'd go into it now it's good enough time uh so the scene where the ghosts leave thomas was very troubling for me um and so i'm going to give it a black potato because is this where you get to talk about you being deserted by your imaginary friends no Uh, (laughs) so it wasn't imaginary friends I probably, I do have some abandonment issues as just a part of my personality, and it probably stems from my father being in the Navy and coming home for a bit and then being forced to leave repeatedly. And so having an emotional scene where loved ones are forced to leave, and this is the right thing to do, but also horrifying for the the child in the scene, that really resonates with me. Um, and so, for me, this is a, a black potato. That's a very troubling scene for me. Um, in addition, I think I'm going to have to give this a russet potato. Or no, a raw potato. It's it's a little bland for me. Once we set up the formula, the formula doesn't change that much. It's kind of four different stories having the same type of setup, the same type of rev- resolution. and You're everyone talking today. You're having trouble talking today. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> par for the course. Um, so, it's kind of the same type of story over and over again. And because of that, I'm also going to give it potato skins 
it this film has its moment, but ultimately there's not enough there. I felt a little eh by the end of the film. And so for me, uh, I'm going to give it a raw black potato skins. <laughs> so Carl's wrong. Okay, great. And Robert Downey Jr. agrees with me because he said that this was one of his favorite movies to do. Oh, it's probably great from an acting yeah. standpoint in that he got to portray a lot of different characters and show a bunch of range. He says he likes this movie. Robert Downey Jr. agrees with me. Robert Downey Jr. is always right because he's Iron Man. <laughs> That's how it works, right? <laughs> I mean, that is how it works. Truth be told. Um, anyway, but I give it a mashed potatoes because it makes me happy. And I give it a steak and shake because this, I love this movie. My favorite Robert Downey Jr. movie. To be fair, I haven't seen every Robert Downey Jr. movie. I haven't seen Chaplin. Oh, you oh. need to see that Sorry. one. How is that not one of his favorite films to have yeah, done? Yeah, no kidding. I don't know. Um, I, I said one of his. It could be another one of his favorites. One of his implies there's multiple that he Yeah, I mean, he could just like every film he's ever done. <laughs> I really hope he didn't like that one he did with Anthony Michael Hall, where he's has really terrible hair and is like a punk singer. Um... And they find the statue in the front yard. Um, anyway, that's a different story. Um, but yeah, so Second Paste Potatoes. It's not my favorite romantic comedy. That might go to either Benny and June or Ten Things I Hate About You. But it's up there. It's top five. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of comedy. Very little romance in this film. But I like it. So, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. All right, so let's go on to our rewatchability scale, a scale from 0 to 10, telling our audience, should they go back and watch this film? I give it a 9. I like it. It's not a perfect movie, because obviously a perfect movie is Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's still really good. I think if it's your kind of jam, like it's my kind of jam, you should definitely watch it. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think it's, for what it is, I think it's really good at what is it's doing, Robert Downey Jr. I think it for an ensemble piece, it's really good performances from all of them. I mean, I like Kira Sedgwick and things. I watched far too many episodes of The Closer, so I like her. All right, so I think I've gone over all of my thoughts of the film as we've been recording. Yep. Uh, that I like RDJ's performance in this. I like all the characters he does. I thought the beginning of the movie was great. It's a great first act in How that it's kind like of a... How did you like the singing? Uh, like it was... Oh, that. I thought you meant the, the National Anthem. No. National Anthem was fine. The uh, Walk Like a Man was pretty great. I do like the parts where they're showing them all doing it together and then they cut away to just the kids <laughs> singing like a crazy person. Yeah, so beginning of this film is great. It's a great first act. The second act, it starts to lose me, and by the third act, I was a little bored. And because it doesn't have a very strong ending for me, uh, that is one of the most important parts of the film. Had the middle been boring and the ending brought it back, my score would have been much higher. But as it was, the beginning was great, and then it kind of just slowly lost me as the film went on. And so I am going to give it maybe a 6.5. By the end of the film, I was just kind of feeling meh. <coughs> Sarah's coughing over your score because she doesn't want to hear how bad it was. No, That's all right. It. I'm going to cut her out. There's going to be choking. no audio from Sarah this entire episode. <laughs> nope, I'm legitimately choking. <coughs> I, I can't do anything about that over here. I I'm hope okay. that you're okay. <laughs> I got a drink. All right. Um... 
So, uh, as I said in the potato scale, it was better than I expected. I Romantic <laughs> comedies are probably not something I would go to on my own. Like, if I have a choice of three different movies and rom-com was one of them, it would probably be the first one that I would take off the list <laughs> and then pick between the other two. But... Uh, since I'm forced to watch it, I mean, I do enjoy them when I see them. I just think that they're not always, they would not be my first pick. But having said that, I do enjoy this one, and the acting was all very well done, as we have discussed. So, um, I guess it has some of its plot holes that we talked about, but I don't see it as... I didn't get as bored through the center of it, I guess, as Carl does. So Which, the gooey middle, mm-hmm. yes, the gooey center of this middle, the caramel filling, <laughs> the caramel want. filling, the tootsie roll now center. I want, now I want a chocolate. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> so anyway, um, I I gave it a little bit lower than Sarah, but I'm gonna stay at a solid eight. I think it's still worth watching. Just to, if if not for the story, at least to experience the acting in it, because they they all did a good job, and especially Robert Downey Jr. doing multiple roles throughout the film. So and you can mm-hmm. see how well he's aged, even though he was a drug addict and went to jail. He still looks pretty good for that being. A young one, and it's almost 20 years later, and he still looks pretty much the same. I don't know. He was pretty emaciated in Endgame. (laughs) He he pulled Uh. a Christian Bale. (laughs) Ooh, that's that's a movie we're not watching. Oh, The Machinist? I could make you watch it it. just because. No. I'm never watching that movie again. (laughs) Fair. All right. Well, that's going to close out our review scales. Uh, And, Sarah, can you tell our audience where to... To find us online, should they choose to do so. Oh. Pulled it back. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I had to find the right notebook. Uh, yes, you can find us at Retrograding Podcast on Facebook. You can find each other Retrograding Party Line on Facebook. Our website is retrograding.fireside.fm. And Dominique Barnes did our music. Yes, and we are trying to post more. Uh, the last few films, we have posted some collages of things that we have referenced in the film so you can see what we are talking about uh, without having to watch the film entirely. I will try to find a few things in this film to reference as well. Maybe the ghost bus. Uh, Although if we or... do read a movie really highly, you might as well go watch it anyway. That's fair. All right. So that is going to bring us to our final segment, which is, guys, I learned something today. And we're going to turn it over to Sarah for our lesson. Guys, I learned something today. If you're seeing ghosts that are your friends, be better at hiding it from your parents so they don't think you're crazy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to close. Uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. We will catch you guys next time. Let's bring it in. Huddle? You said let's bring it in! (laughs)
Isn't that what like football coaches say when they they have a lot? Oh, you said you said huddle. I thought you said puddle, yeah. like your father's dog. I no. heard puddle also. Also, that was puddles. <laughs> it was plural. Yes. Okay. No, I said <clears throat> huddle. Blooper. Yes, this is Retrograding, the show where three 90s kids give adult looks to our favorite childhood movies. This week, we are taking a look back at An American Tale to see if our no! nostalgia is warranted. Did Sarah, Carl watch I know. the wrong movie? Sarah, I know. <laughs> oh, that would have been that was That was a joke, and it went off real great. Oh, give me a heart attack! <laughs> it would have been really great if we had both watched the wrong movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, here's the real intro. Well, he couldn't have, he gave us the I know. Four spirits watching him his entire life. Is a ghost calling, Sarah? I don't know. I don't recognize this number. It's a cell phone. It's a ghost! Just a second. In a late night in the late 50s, a. I can't. Stop it! Stop it! I can't see that! Wait, restart! <laughs> Just talk. Uh, Alright, I'll restart it. Sorry, my recording was in front of the thing, and all I see is the <laughs> side of a cell phone. Uh, Not the actual right. number. Okay, let's right, try on, this again. Let me, I gotta figure out how to... Okay, We're getting fine. lots of blooper reels in the first five minutes of this. Oh, yeah, it's real great for my recording and Well, the first one process. was your fault. It was not. You had it in front of the window. No, she's talking about the American oh, tale. Yeah, I may just leave that in because it's funny. Okay. Anyway, uh, and in three, two, one, go. Four people who nam. Oh, nope, we're starting that over. <clears throat> Does anyone have a lesson? I never write these anymore. <laughs> Maybe you should do that sometime. Uh, Maybe. The lesson is, hey kids, if you're seeing ghosts, be better at hiding it from your parents. Great. You're going to deliver our lesson. Uh, but first. <laughs> uh, and. Harrison's a little. <laughs> he does a fine job. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> what? Is it weird that you've gotten four calls? Sorry, I've got three jobs. If you count this one. So you've got a job that I'm going to give you. <laughs> where. Before we record again, I would very much enjoy you figuring out no, that phone. No, I put it on mute, and it still rang, so I don't then, know how to figure it out. I don't know. Look up the user guide or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It has a lot of buttons. Or, here's an idea. Could you move it to a different room? No. Because... I think that would reset everything. Reset how? You just fuck a, plug a phone line. <laughs> you what? <laughs> and into you the plug wall. A, you fuck a phone line. <laughs> but I don't know if unplugging it is going to, like, I'd have to reset the time and probably reset my oh. all of my recording stuff. All right, all right. Anyway. But if you could figure it out beforehand, before we record It's not my next, fault. I have a family that lives with you, contact me, and you two your parents, people are lazy. Please. Losers who have no friends because And actually me. have cell phone reception. Oh, no, I just have a phone that I could turn on mute. Well, that's because you people just have cell phones, because the only so, people that call you are It's fine. I thought we were talking about a movie it's at fine. some point. No, we are I have a life with people that call me, and you guys just look at flamingos. 
That's only um, me. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, it was the only thing I could think of. I lost train of thought halfway through that insult. All right, so back to Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. I'll try to insult you better next time. Perfect. I'll work on it.